A life that is doing well does not always equal a life that is doing right. If your life is going all right, that doesn't mean that you're doing the right thing. It could be possible that you are living a life that is going perfectly fine, yet you are doing the wrong thing. You could be a billionaire making a ton of money. Your life's going great. You got mansions. I heard Dead Mouse just bought a mansion for $5 million. Just like, just because. I just feel like buying a mansion. Just bought a mansion. You think his life's pretty hard? Probably not at this, at this time and point in, in, in history. But that doesn't mean he's doing the right thing. And the same is true with us. A life that is doing well doesn't equal a life that is doing right. You could be going through the motions. You could be coming to church. You could be reading your Bible even. You could be praying even. Yet, be on the wrong course if you have the wrong motivations. And if you're not doing it unto the Lord. I don't know about you, but there are times I've read my Bible. And you'll ask me, so what did you read in the Bible? I can tell you what I read in the Bible. Did it speak to my heart though? Did I, did I allow enough time for God to speak to me? Or did I kind of just multitask? And if you multitask, you're texting while reading your Bible. You're doing your homework and you're on the computer. I've actually read a study recently that shows that your brain, uh, your brain starts suffering some kind of like atrophy if you're doing multitasking all the time. Because your brain wasn't designed to do two things at once. But we're experts at it now. We can text while driving. We can talk to our friends while texting. And, you know, I mean, our brains were never designed to do that. And be, when you start multitasking, you can't do either one right. Um, so the thing is, you can have the appearance of doing something, yet we, we know that your heart's not in it. You could be texting your friend and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm paying attention to what you're saying. But we know that you're not paying attention. How much more the God of the universe, when he's watching you do your devotional time, when he's watching you at church and you're taking notes, oh yeah, I'm taking notes, oh yeah, I'm worshiping, you have the outward appearance, but could it be possible that you don't have the right heart because you didn't approach God with the, the right motivations? And say, Lord, I really do desire to hear from you today. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect, obviously not. No one's going to be perfect but did you start your devotions this morning? Did you start devotions at night? Did you uh, approach God's house with that intention that I want to hear from God? Even as we prayed five minutes ago, did you really expect God to speak to your heart? Or did you just kind of like, oh yeah, well, you know, it's, it's kind of like routine. Because sometimes things can become routine. And when things become routine, they have less of an effect. At first, you're reading your Bible every day. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm getting something every day. But what do you do when it just feels repetitious? What do you do when you thought at first like, oh yeah, this retreat was amazing. We had that time of worship. But then you've been on like six retreats. And okay, we know this is the night when everyone cries. This is the letter I'm going to write and I'm going to get it in six months. And no, I failed to do everything on that list. At what point does the routine ruin the relationship? It's the same thing like, I'd expect, if you're dating someone for a while, at first you say the magical words, I love you. Oh my gosh, he said the L word. And it's magical. 
But then you say it not just once, twice. Now you say it all the time. And you just end your text message, love you, bye. Actually, I have a friend who, <laughs> he was driving to work and he figured that he could text his wife with this app that like sends a text message based on location. So whenever he got to work, it would send a text message saying, I love you. He's like, this is great. So I don't even have to text her anymore. I can just send it on my phone. But what he didn't realize is there was one day that he had to go back and forth from work like five times. Like he forgot one thing and kept on going like five times and said, I love you like five times. She's like, what's happening? Are you okay? She's like all worried. But sometimes the routine ruins a relationship and you need something different. Well, actually, that's what happens to the disciples. Jesus resurrects. We learned that last week or two weeks ago. Jesus resurrects. People are excited. But then what? Well, I guess we just go back to what we were doing. I guess now that Jesus is alive, we, we just go back to our old jobs. And, and, and some of us view it that way, right? You, you have a retreat. You have this experience with God. And you have a, a high point, your, your mountaintop experience. And then you have to go back to school. And then you have to do your homework. And then you have to do your chores. And, and I guess, yeah, I, I know I had an experience. But now how do I love Jesus even in the routine? Well, it says in verse 1 of chapter 21 of John, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Hold on a second. Didn't Peter give up? his fishing to follow Jesus? Didn't he say that he was going to leave that behind to follow God? How is it now that Peter is going to go fishing? Well, they said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. So they returned back to their job. I mean, like, it's not like they could just go out and just not have a job anymore. Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, so they have to return back to the things that they were doing. And that's not necessarily wrong. It's just that how do you approach your job with an infusion of the Holy Spirit? Even Paul was a tent maker. That was his occupation. It's not like Paul just traveled and did nothing and just suddenly got money. Sometimes he did. Sometimes he was funded. Sometimes he could live in, in certain places that were uh, full of rich people. And sometimes he was in the poorhouse. But how do you live in the routine? But when the morning had come, now come, in verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Why? Well, most likely because it was really dark out and they couldn't tell who was there. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of the fish. This chapter is so exciting. I like, I read this on Saturday, and I was so pumped because of some of the insights that I'm about to share with you. First insight is this. If you don't have the light of Christ illuminating your mission, your efforts will be in vain. They were fishing at nighttime, and they caught nothing. And we know that John, he's kind of mystical. 
like when the Apostle John's writing his gospel, it's, it's different than other gospels. He intentionally throws in these little pictures to, to draw your attention to the deeper relationship between the picture and God. So the reason why he uses this symbol, night, is not just the fact that they, they went at night, but because Jesus is the light of the world. So it draws us that picture that if Jesus is not illuminating your mission, if Jesus' light is not shining on your job, on your schoolwork, you're not going to catch anything. Your efforts will be in vain. It reminds me of that verse, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And many of us will strive in the night, in the darkness, groping around, trying to find our way, trying to do our thing for God, yet God is not in it because God's light is not shined upon it. It can be very possible. You're trying with this relationship and you're trying with that person so hard and you're like, I'm going to make this work. I know this is right. And, and you know what? It's not what God intended. You, it could be going well, but that doesn't mean it's going right. You could be doing a lot of things well, but it may not be the will of God. Before you enter a relationship, before you enter an occupation, you apply for a job. Before you do your homework, do you stop for a moment and say, Lord, would you shine light on what I'm about to do? Because I understand what the Bible says is do your work heartily as unto the Lord. So whether it's doing your chores, whether it's doing things to appease your parents so you can go out at night, you're not just doing it for your parents, you're doing it for God. You're not just doing your homework to appease your teachers and to whatever, you're doing this unto the Lord. And that should dramatically shift your thinking. Why? Because now you're not cheating on your homework. You're not doing it five minutes before class. Why? Because how would God feel about you cheating on your homework? How would God feel about the fact that you're taking your work and like, I guess I just got to get it done? How does God feel about the fact that when you clean toilets, you're just doing the bare minimum so that you can go out at night with your friends? If God is not illuminating your mission, your efforts are going to be in vain. It may look great, but you're not going to catch anything. You're always going to be scrambling around in the dark trying to figure out what is my true purpose in life because it doesn't seem like I'm catching anything. You're going to be trying so hard to get that job, to impress people, to look good in front of people, and be doing your makeup for hours, but it doesn't seem like it's working. You ever just like, you get a haircut and you just know it's a bad haircut and you try to fix it yourself and you're like, oh man, I'm making it worse. You just feel like you're striving. Some of us are striving because, of, because we have not allowed God to go before our mission. James says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or do that. In James 4, 13 through 15. Instead, it's kind of like in Numbers chapter 9, when the people of Israel had, uh, were following God and his presence when it was sitting above the tabernacle. And it says in Numbers chapter 9, verse 22, whether it's two days, a month, or a year, that, that God's presence was above that tabernacle, they would not move unless the Lord went before them. They would remain encamped. They would stay put until God would go before them. Are you allowing God to illuminate your mission? Are you allowing God to go before you in what you do rather than going ahead of God and just doing whatever you want? Are you going into darkness 
because you're too tired waiting for God's light to shine upon a situation. And you're like, well, I, I prayed for like five minutes and God didn't like make anything clear to me, so I need to make a decision. I'm going to make a decision. So many of us aren't practicing one of the fruits of the Spirit, which is patience, which means you sit there until God shows you what's next, which means you read the Bible until you hear God speak to you. I'm not saying that every single time you read, it's going to be just as exciting. There will be times that it's just, you're just like, I, I don't know what this means. But are you willing to wait there until God reaches you and shows you where you to go next? I want you to pay attention to something very carefully in verse 6. Because this blew my mind. Verse 6. It says, Jesus told them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And they, they did and they found so many fish, they could hardly even bring it up. Awesome, crazy, amazing. What's so fascinating about this? Well, to me... It's what Jesus didn't do, which was so fascinating to me. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? What did he do? He multiplied the fish and the loaves. Why is it that Jesus didn't just pop some fish where they were looking? I mean, they were trying really hard. Why isn't Jesus just multiply the fish that was right in front of them? It's because Jesus wanted them to look on the other side. He didn't multiply the fish. He simply illuminated the eyes of the disciples to see what was already there. In other words, he told them where to look. You see, sometimes we hold out our hands before the Lord and say, God, bless what I got. And he says, I want you to look on the other side. Sometimes we're saying, Lord, I have this gifting. I know I'm, I'm supposed to be a singer. So just make my voice really good. And you're striving so hard because it's just not working. But God wants you to see the gifting he's put right under your nose. Maybe you've been looking too hard in this one side and not looking at what he's already given you. You're looking at everyone else and saying, why aren't I like them? When Jesus says, I have made you fearfully and wonderfully made for a specific purpose and plan. I don't want you to be someone else. I want you to be you. We can pray one of two things. We can say, Lord, multiply my provision, or we can say, Lord, expand my vision. In other words, we can pray, Lord, multiply the things that are here, or we can say, Lord, show me what's, what's already here that I don't see. But are we, are we praying? Are we sitting before the Lord and asking him to show us, or are we too blinded to see what we already have because we're jealous of what other people have? I remember being in... Listen, it's not just a girl thing. Like, guys do it too. Like, I remember being in third grade and wishing that I looked like my friend because I thought he could, you know, he was better looking than I was. It's not just a girl thing. It's a guy thing too. People are intimidated by how other people look, the other giftings and talents that other people have. But we have to remember that if we don't get this concept, we're always going to be striving to be something we are not. Think about David. David was uh, in a position where he had to take down a giant. What did Saul do? Saul told him, here, put on my armor. Some of us are David trying to put on Saul's armor. 
just because we want to look good before other people. And you know what? It's never going to fit. You're not going to be Saul. You're not going to be Samson. You're not going to be anyone else. You have to be who God has called you to be. God has equipped you with a sling and a stone. You use that to take down the giant. Don't use someone else's armor. You can't be what you're not. You can't be Moses praying, Lord, use, my, uh, use somebody else because I don't have the gifting. I can't speak well, so you got to use someone else. Well, who made your tongue? God asked him. Is it not I, the Lord? And remember, in that passage in Exodus chapter 3, God never gives him something that he doesn't already have. He says, what's that on the ground? That's a staff. Use it, throw it down, it becomes a serpent. God uses what you have. And sometimes we're looking all around us trying to figure out what our calling and what our gifting is when God wants us to see what's already there. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who has called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. I, I was, once again, I was in Oklahoma and Kansas this past weekend. I was actually in Oklahoma, Illinois, Colorado, Kansas. Yes, all those states. But, oh, and Texas too. It's crazy. Um, I was hiking around in Oklahoma. I woke up in the morning, most shady hotel room ever. Never stay in America's best value inn. It is not a great value. In fact, it's probably the worst value inn I've ever been in. But that's what you get for paying $50 a night for a hotel room. <clears throat> Including tax. Um, so I woke up went to this awesome coffee shop in Oklahoma and I just sat before the Lord, allowed him to speak to me. Then I went hiking in Chandler Park and it's this kind of rock quarry where I get to do a little bit of climbing um, and just kind of walk around. And there was this, this boulder that was pretty tall to the point that if I fell, it would not be good. And I was by myself because there's no people in Oklahoma and no offense if you're from there. And so I was looking at this boulder and I was like, if I climb this, it wouldn't be that hard, but if I fell, that would be very bad. I'd be by myself, I'd break a leg, no one would be around me. So I'm thinking, I'm, I'm like, should I do this? Should I not do this? So I was like, well, I don't, I mean, I've done a billion of these rock climbs. I'll be fine. So I start climbing, and once I'm towards the top, I'm like, all right, this is kind of scary because I, I feel like I'm not going to fall, but I, I could potentially fall. So I'm, I'm just fighting myself in my mind, but I, I get to the top, and I see on the other side are like steps. Like, really easy steps. And it's like I was striving to get to the top when all I had to do was look on the other side. It's the same thing with you. Sometimes you're striving, you're scared, you're fearful, you're going into whatever God is calling you to do, and God's saying, listen, you just had to look on the other side. Look at what I've already given you before you ask for more of something else. How many times are we striving just because we're not content with what we have? So not only should we pray for things we don't have, that's not wrong to pray that. It's not wrong to say, Lord, would you give me this gift and would you help me with this? But also, we should ask God to show us what we've already been given. You can pray one of two things. Lord, multiply my provision or Lord, would you expand my vision? Let's go to verse 7. 
Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and the fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Very important that we remember that. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask them, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Remember, it's dark out. They can't really tell who's there. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So they have this giant catch. They actually counted 153 fish. And commentators have speculated what this means. Like it could be symbolic of the number of types of fish they thought were around during the day. But there's actually 157, not 153. So people are speculating all kinds of weird things. It doesn't really matter. All we know is... It was a large number of fish that were caught by this net. And they drag it to the sea. Peter actually, for whatever reason, he's naked or barely naked or whatever. So he (laughs) takes his outer garment, puts it on, and plunges into the sea. I'm sorry. And goes towards Jesus. We'll get back to that later. Anyway, so this large catch brings it over to Jesus where Jesus is preparing them breakfast. How do you prevent... A big catch from going to your head. Let's say you find the gifting. You find the talent. You find what God's given you. How do you keep that from going to your head? Because some of us may be like, wow, you know what? I am used of God. Because someone says, wow, you have a gift. Oh my gosh, that's so good. You're so talented. And it's hard for us not to be like, yes, yes I am. Glory be to God, but yes, I am. I mean, It's just a temptation for so many people. And if we aren't careful, our gifting can actually become our identity. It's how we introduce ourselves. So, what's your name? Oh, my name's Alan. So what do you do? Oh, well, I am a musician. I am an artist. I am a rock climber. You know, whatever. You fill in the blank. It's usually how we introduce ourselves is this is what I do. It becomes part of who we are. And we got to be very careful because sometimes when God gives us something, we want to infuse that into our being when it was never meant to be. How do you keep those things from going to your head? Because obviously the amount of fish that Peter caught was not due to his own power. It was just the fact that God told him where to look. And oftentimes when you're good at something, it's not because you're awesome. It's because God's awesome. If God is blessing you, it's because God's blessing you that that you have these things. Not because you had the right technique and you found the right place in time. And that's why we got to be careful when we're reading books of these people with great success. And how to be the best singer and how to be the best whatever. Because they may not have the answers. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, I believe it's chapter 9, it talks about it's all about being at the right place at the right time. Because God's the one who imparts the gifts. He's the one who orchestrates everything. And it's not about how talented you are. It's about how good God is and gives those things to his people. But also remember, Peter was originally called to leave being a fisherman. So this, this was Peter's talent. He was a fisherman. That's what he did as an occupation. That was his job. Go out, fish, bring him back. 
it would be easy to see how a catch this big could go straight to Peter's head as well. But Jesus doesn't say that you should be giftless and talentless. He's not saying that you shouldn't love anything. You shouldn't like, you know, have a hobby or, or something like that. He calls us to use our talents for his kingdom. You see, Peter left being a fisherman to become what? A fisher of men. Well, how do you catch men? By feeding them fish. What was the purpose of being a fisherman? It was to feed people. You see, that's actually what happens later on. Is Jesus says, if you love me, feed my sheep. It's kind of like a food chain thing. The only purpose you're catching fish is to catch people. Why are you using your gifts and your talents? Is it so that people look at you and are like, wow, what an amazing person. Or are you catching them to look at Christ? Are you bringing that net towards Jesus? Or are you holding on to that net? You see, it says here in verse Verse 11, although there were so many, the net was not broken. I think it's interesting they, they mentioned that, that John mentions that in this verse, because how do you keep the net from breaking? You let the fish out. If you're always holding on to those fish, eventually it's going to break. Eventually the net's going to pop. But if you're using it for its intended purpose, which is dragging those fish onto the sea to feed people, you're never going to have a problem. How do you stay humble? How do you give the glory back to God? By making sure your gift is used as a tool, not as an idol. Pastor Lloyd always says, your gifting can either be a tool or an idol. You either worship it or you use it as a tool to bring people towards Jesus. Now maybe you're thinking, well, I don't have a gift. I don't have a talent. You know, look at everyone else. It's obvious who, who, you know, what gifting that person has, but I don't feel like I have anything. Well, don't ask yourself, what are you good at? Ask yourself, what do you love to do? I don't love to do anything. Okay, that's a lie. Everyone loves to do something. What do you like doing? You may not be the best at it. If you like taking pictures, if you like graphic design, if you like, I mean, that is a gift that God has given you. He's given you a good desire. Now use it unto the Lord. You don't have to be the best. God does not call you to catch every person. He only calls you to feed some people. He doesn't call you to have the biggest catch, catch 153 fish. He just asks you to look in the right place and catch a few people. To feed some people, to bless some people with the fish that God has given you. So don't look at everyone else's catch and don't compare yourself with everybody else. Just ask, what do I love to do and how can I use this unto the Lord? Look at, uh, also, I think it's important to note the contrast of a changed Peter. Peter, before, when Jesus did this one other time before, he said to Jesus, depart from me, I am a sinful man. But this time, Peter plunges into the ocean and goes right to Jesus, even when things weren't clear. So actually what happens is, as I said before, Peter was not wearing a lot of garments, but he put on an hour garment and plunged into the ocean. Remember, this is at night. He can't tell what's happening. And actually, it tells us that the apostle John the disciple whom Jesus loved was the one who said, it is the Lord. So check out this picture. What a way to close out this series. Peter hears that it's Jesus and takes a leap in the dark into the ocean towards God. Isn't that crazy? I thought it was pretty cool. It's like, wow, I couldn't have actually planned that. What about you? You may not know everything. 
But you know something. You may not feel like you can see Jesus clearly. You may feel when you come to youth group that you don't have it all together. You're not even sure if this is legit half the time. But do you know something? Do you know something about Jesus? Because that's all you need to take a, a leap of faith. Faith is only possible and trust is only possible if you do not know everything. If you knew everything, you wouldn't trust. But the fact that you don't know everything means that you have to place your faith in what you cannot see. And that's exactly what Peter did. He plunged into the ocean and went after Jesus, regardless of the obstacles in front of him. So are you looking for certainty? Are you looking for Jesus to give you... I mean, like, what, what else does Jesus have to do at this point in time to grab your attention and to show you that he is worth living for? If you've been with us for a while, you've been going through these messages, you by now should know that God is real. That Jesus has spoken to your heart. So instead of asking question after question after question after question, why don't you just surrender to Jesus and say, you know what, Lord, I don't have all the answers and I probably will never have all the answers, but I know enough to take this leap of faith and say, Lord, would you please draw near to me as I draw near to you? Would you forgive me of my sins? I recognize that at least, although I don't have all the answers, I don't want to live this way. And I repent of my sins. I turn from them and I want to follow you. Look at verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to, the, to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. A lot of commentators have looked at this and have questioned why is it that Jesus asked him three times? And many believe that it's because Jesus denied, uh, Peter denied Jesus three times. You see, a lot of people actually, a lot of uh, skeptics have thought that chapter 21 was kind of added to the end of John later. Although they don't have any evidence for it, they're just kind of like, why are we having another chapter when we know that Jesus has resurrected? All the other gospels end with the resurrection and ascension. That's it. But John's gospel continues on with this epilogue. And the reason being, John is, is paying attention to the details of Peter's repentance. What happens to Peter after Jesus resurrects from the dead? And I'm thankful for it because it shows us a little bit of what Jesus is, is intending to do with Peter. Because Peter had returned to his job and had gone back into the routine. But Jesus was setting him up for the Holy Spirit who is going to bring him onto an amazing journey. He would go on to write the epistles of First and Second Peter. And First Peter we're going to read next fall. But see, Peter was about to be empowered for a new mission. And that's why Jesus asks, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. He was giving him a new purpose. Instead of just saying, catch some fish and feed some people, 
I want you to be specific. He's not saying feed everyone in the world. He's saying feed my sheep. Who are the sheep? His church. You got to feed the church the word of God. That's why you come to youth group. It's so that you can be fed and you can feed others. It doesn't just stop when you read your Bible and you do your devotions. You're done for the day. Once you are fed, you also have to go out and feed others. How about this? You ever take your devotional time and say, maybe this isn't a word for me. Maybe this is a word for someone else. Maybe my intention isn't just to sit here and learn, but I am to go out and feed Jesus' sheep. Because when Jesus said, feed, if you love me, feed my sheep, what he's saying is, if you love me, feed my sheep, because I will from now on be in the sheep. I will be in the church. And loving me means loving my people. You can't say that you love Jesus and hate his family. In the same way, we have to come to the church knowing that we're to be loving one another and teaching them the word of God. And that's what Jesus aimed to do with Peter in these couple verses. He kept on asking, do you love me? And before this, Peter would always say, I'd be willing to die for you and risk all, every, even if everyone else turns away from you, I'll never turn away from you. But this time, Peter answers by saying, Lord, you know all things. He was deferring. And maybe you're in that place, you're like, I don't even know. Lord, you know if I love you. I don't know what I feel anymore. I feel like a failure. Peter did. He was the one who denied Jesus three times. And the third time, he actually made eye contact with Jesus when Jesus was being crucified. Talk about insult to injury. It's not just you're denying Jesus, the one you said that you die for him. But you look him, you make eye contact with him as he's being led away to be crucified. So Peter just defers to Jesus, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And that's when Jesus says, you feed my sheep. Because Jesus did know that beyond everything else, with all the exterior, all the, all the fakeness, at the very core of who he was, that Peter really did care about Jesus. And that's why he empowered him for a new mission. Verse 18, most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to, to him, follow me. Actually, church history tells us that Peter would go on to be a martyr. Some people have speculated that he was crucified upside down. We don't really know. All we know is that he died for the name of Jesus. Although Peter found it hard to live for him. He did die for him in the end. Verse 20, then Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following who had also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Remember, this is John he's speaking of. Peter seeing him said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is so important. This right here is so important, so crucial for us to understand. Because many of us, once again, are looking out at what everyone else's mission is. And we're finding our efforts hard, we're laboring, and we feel like it's in vain because it doesn't look like someone else's mission. And Jesus says, why are you asking about somebody else? In fact, the Apostle John, he was the only disciple that wasn't martyred for his faith. Only apostle that wasn't martyred for his faith. John uh, later on was exiled to the island of Patmos, as we know, and wrote the book of Revelation. 
And so Peter looks at him and says, why doesn't he have to be crucified? Why doesn't he have to, to die a martyr's death? But listen, God doesn't call you to be just like everybody else. He calls you to be you. And it's designed you for a specific purpose. So once again, we can't look at everyone else's portion, everyone else's deal, and ask why we aren't like that person. Just ask, what is God calling you to do? What is your gifting and how can you be a blessing to others? So instead of evaluating everyone else's mission, what you're doing is, I want to be on a mission to bless those people I'm envious of. The very same people that I'm just like, I wish I could be like that person. Instead, I'm going to say, I'm going to look to be a blessing to that person because we're all in the same family. Instead of looking at their fruit and saying, wow, that person's so mightily used of God, you're saying, you know what, I want to continue to support that person and raise up their arms because it looks like God's doing something in that person's life. But are you in that place where you're allowing that tool to become an idol? Would Jesus come up to you and say the same thing? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than the gifting that, that, that's in front of you? The thing that I've given you, that relationship I've given you? What would get in, in between you and the Lord? You know, I, I recently heard a, a sermon by a popular pastor who was talking about how social media has caused us to care less about others for a number of different reasons. Number one, we're self-centered. When you go on social media, most people go on not to learn about everyone else, but to check their likes, the people that uh, favorited their, their tweets or whatever, to see people replying on their content or to upload a new picture of themselves or, or whatever. People are going for themselves. Secondly, he would say, it's we're desensitized to compassion. When things are going bad in the world, we see so much of it on a daily basis, eventually it just, it just it's one, in, in one year out, out the other. And the last point is that our brain doesn't know how to differentiate which is more important. So what that means is you'll have on Facebook, for instance, or even on Twitter, you have crazy cat video right next to a person's dying in Iraq. And because there's so much of this information, such a flood, you don't know how to differentiate which is important. Should I watch the crazy cat video or, or watch the video about the new thing from Taco Bell? And because we're so flooded with information, we're just feeling more and more indifferent to the people around us. But amidst all of that, what God is calling us to do as his church and his people is to feed his sheep. Not to go out and feed everybody, feed his sheep. And so that's actually how we're taking a different, different twist into the whole Im, uh, ministry of impact for the next year and, and years going forward. Is that we're not going to go out and just try to reach everyone because there will never be a lack of people that need Jesus. They're just everywhere. But we want to find the people that are searching after him, that want to know him, and bring those people into a safe and loving place where they can find God though he's not far from any one of us. So it's about feeding his sheep, finding out who are those sheep, not the goats, not the wolves. Want to find out who are the people that God would want to be part of this fellowship and welcome them in and love them and not chase after the people that don't want to be fed. I mean, you can't force them. If they don't want to be here, then why bother chasing after them and trying to feed them? Like, no, eat. Eat the fish. I don't like fish. Well, too bad. You can't chase after those people. And you know what? That's why Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary. 
Is that going to chase after all those weary people? It's weird. You wouldn't do that. But looking for those people that are, that are lost and broken. Do you have that kind of heart? Would you pray about praying for the people in our surrounding neighborhoods? Wherever you live. Whether you go to CCS or not. Whether you're homeschooled or not. Your community. Would you pray about praying for people in your community? Would you print out when you go home today, would you go on Google Maps, print out a piece of paper with a map of your town, your city, and say, you know what, I'm going to commit to praying for the people in my neighborhood because there are people out there that are missing out on Jesus because they don't even know that he's real, that he exists, and that he's looking for them. The book of Romans says, how then will they hear without a preacher? If no one's preaching the word of God, if no one's feeding the sheep, they're not going to be fed. So God has called you onto a mission to find out what your gifting is, to find out what your calling is, where your, where your identity is, if it's not in the right place, if it's not in Jesus. He wants you to be on a mission that's illuminated by Christ so that you can go out and shine his light into this world. We're all to take a leap in the dark towards the light so that we can shine light into the dark world. And it's up to you if you want to be a part of that mission. It's not about you working up the light in yourself. You're not, you don't have to reinvent the light bulb in a dark basement. You just have to go and step out into the sunlight. And that's what God wants us to do, to be mirrors, to be reflections of who he is to other people. And all you have to do is say, here I am, Lord. Send me. I am willing. So your ministry must flow from your being fed, from your heart, seeking after the Lord, and people see that and want a little bit of, of that too. It finishes out by saying in verse 23, then this saying went out among the brethren that th this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So basically... Jesus says that, like, don't worry about him. If I wa want him to remain until I come back, what is that to you? And they're like, he's not going to die? John the Apostle's going, and so they're like watching like he gets sick and like, oh man. They're like thinking that he's really going to be invincible, but that's not what he's saying. So, so John the Apostle is combating that. In verse 25, it says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written Amen. I just love how he ends the book of John. He's just like, listen, there's just so much. You can almost picture it like he's writing so fast. He's just like, I, I, I'm trying to write, write, back, uh, uh, write down as much as I can remember. He's just flooding with all this. He's just going at it. He's like, you know what? At the end of the day, there's so many things he did that I suppose the world would not be able to contain the amount of books written about him if I did. But the question is, there has been some things written. 21 chapters in a book that's part of 66 books. What more do you need? What more evidence do you need that Jesus Christ is Lord? That your sin is wretched, evil, that you're a sinner, that you need forgiveness. That apart from God, you can't do anything. Apart from his love, you'd be lost forever in hell for eternity. What more do you need? That's a question that I can't answer for you. That's the question you have to search your soul for. Has God shown himself faithful even a little bit?
Because if you respond to that light, he will give you more and more. If you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. Let's pray.